And that cold weather does make us uh, want to stay in, doesn't it? God is good all the time. Just wanted to say one thing about uh, home groups. That's what it was. Uh, I meant to have those pads out. And honestly, I forgot to come over early enough to do it this morning. And uh, the pads for signing up for the groups, I'll have them out for this evening. Or maybe uh, at the end of services, I'm just going to run right over there and get the pads and, and lay them out. And we'll see if, we, see. if you want to sign up, then, then fine. Um, there may be some restrictions on some of those groups uh, as to size or maybe things that are happening in the group. Uh, I'm just going to ask the people who are the host to just kind of jot those on the side there or something. Let it be known. But uh, that's uh, uh, maybe I think I can get those out just right after services. I'll, I'll take care of them immediately. So you can sign up, but we are in the in the business of uh, getting that taken care of. We we need about four or five more homes uh, to be uh, to make these home groups work like they should. And if you were able to uh, to do that, that'd be great. All right. There are some uh, some sermons where I, I kind of think of them as housekeeping, and we're kind of in uh, housekeeping mode today. Things I'm going to say are not necessarily things that are new, but maybe for some of you they might be. But just some things that need to be said every now and then just to keep people, keep it in the front of our minds. You know, all of us as Christians worship the same God, and we read from the same book. And uh, that's, I mean, an outsider would look at, at, at our situation here, here in this one community, and they say, hey, there's a half dozen different kinds of churches here. If we're all worshiping the same God and reading from the same book, why are there so many different kinds of Christians and so many different kinds of churches? Why is the Christian world so uh, divided and fractured? You know, it, it is a kind of an embarrassment to, uh, to those of us who are Christians that we don't seem to be able to get ourselves together, that there can't be more unity. Jesus prayed for the unity of all believers in the, in the prayer he prayed in John chapter 17. And in that prayer, in, in the early verses, he's praying about his disciples specifically. But there comes a point around verse 20 or 21 where Jesus shifts in his prayer. And he's no longer just praying for the 12, but now he's going to pray for the people who would believe through them. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. And he's talking about his disciples. But for those also who believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus prayed that all of his, all the believers, everyone who would believe through the preaching of the apostles, would somehow be united in some way or the other, that, that, they, would be, that they would feel that, uh, that unity which God intended. Paul taught the church at Ephesus, uh, it's, it's an admonition that comes in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. He tells them to walk worthy of their calling. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That's how that chapter begins. And in just a few verses, Paul is going to give them one particular thing they need to pay attention to if they're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received. That's what we find in verses 3 through 6. This is where... Paul says, this is basically King James English here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. No, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
He says, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. And so Paul explains what it means to walk in a way worthy of our calling. And the first thing he comes to is the matter of unity. He said, I want you guys to be united. There is just one body and one spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's just one God. And so there ought to be some kind of a unity. Every Christian acknowledges this problem that I'm talking about. And at the same time, we acknowledge what God's will on this subject is. But the problem still persists. And why is that? And I want to tell you something. I don't have a good answer. I have a partial answer. But I, I cannot entirely answer this. But I can promise, promise you this. The problem is not with God, and it's not in his word. I think the problem probably is with us. That somehow the, the, the real problem is somehow with us, the followers. Part of the problem is that we can't even agree about what to do about this lack of unity. Historically, there have been two basic approaches to uh, having unity in the body of Christ. One is what I'll call uh, a, a negotiated unity. And that's where a bunch of people from different uh, persuasions or whatever get in a room and they sit down around a table and they talk about things, trying to find the common ground that exists between them. And they write these uh, documents where they, they carefully word the document so that as many people as possible can sign on with that thing and say, yeah, I believe that. Now, as they're doing that, they realize that not everyone who's signing on believes the same thing about the words that are there because they're all defining those words differently. And so it, it's kind of a, a, an exercise in hypocrisy to some extent that, oh, yeah, we can all sign this document, but we all mean different things by the words that we're looking at here. That's a, that's a very common thing. And the, the, the real problem with it is that even though a lot of people who claim Christ may sit down in a room and, and finally be able to write out something that, where they can say, that's common ground, that, that's where we all stand, that's, that's where we're united, that doesn't necessarily mean that what's on that piece of paper is God's will. I mean, if, if what you're looking at is what is the common ground, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But there's no, no guarantee that what's there on that document and what these people are saying is God's will. The other way of coming at this, besides negotiating it, so to speak, is that everyone yields to the authority of the Bible. That there is a Bible-based unity. In fact, that's what Paul is talking about there when he says there is one, when he speaks of endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit, what is that? Well, it, 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 it's a unity that exists because we all share in, in the Spirit. But the Spirit promotes unity in, in that it, it gives us all the same thoughts, the same teaching. The Spirit gave the apostles the teaching that we have. And so we can unite in that teaching, and we can unite in all things that pertain to the Spirit that are there. And so this, uh, this Spirit-based unity is, is a Bible-based unity. It's, a, it's based upon God's Word. And so when Jesus was praying for the unity of his people in John 17, he was not praying for a negotiated unity. That isn't what he was aiming at. But he was praying for a unity that was based on his truth, his teaching. That's a Bible-based unity. That's a spirit-based unity. Jesus said this. This is John chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. And what he says here is, is, is the basis of judgment 
When judgment day rolls around, our basis of judgment is going to be his words. It's not some document that we negotiate. It's not, it's not maybe our own little thing that we've got. Uh, in, but what the basis of judgment is going to be his words. So Jesus says this. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, at least not at this present time. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And Jesus' first trip to this world was to save the world. But then he goes on to say, But he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Jesus says, you know, that's how we're going to be judged. The unity that we are trying to establish needs to be based on the words of Christ. Jesus spoke all kinds of words during his ministry. We've got them in those four Gospels. We've got those red letters, you know. But he also spoke through his apostles. He gave them the spirit to guide them. And, and those, the words that came through the apostles are, are Jesus' words, just the same as the ones in the Gospels are. The bottom line is Jesus wants all Christians to unite around his words, to believe them, to teach them, and to practice what he has given. Now, I'll... I, just to shift gears here, I want to give you seven steps that we can take to get to Bible-based unity. I'm very, very quickly, I just want to go through these. And, and this is what I want to say. These are not the people who are uh, thinking about negotiating some kind of unity. These are people who understand the only real unity that matters, it's going to mean anything on Judgment Day, is the one that's based on the words of Christ. It's Bible-based unity. Most conservative churches would agree with these seven steps. So let's go. Number one, accept the New Testament as the only valid covenant between God and man. Number two, no scripture is to be taken in isolation. Let scripture interpret scripture. One scripture doesn't cancel out the other. You know, that's how some people uh, deal with any kind of controversy. Well, my scripture cancels out that one, so we don't have to worry about anything, do we? But the, the goal of, of, of studying the Bible is to harmonize and to find out where those scriptures meet and how they interact with each other. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. He's being tempted by the devil. He says, uh, <clears throat> he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I want to emphasize every. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, it, it's not fair for me to say, well, uh, to ignore anything that, that God is saying. All of it is important. All of it is from God. Which brings me to number three. No scripture is to be ignored or simply dismissed. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. At the very end of our Bibles, you'll find this, these words. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So no scripture is to be ignored or dismissed or whatever. And we're not at liberty to just start adding things in. We understand that. Here's number four. Believe and teach and practice only what can be established by scripture. Number five, allow freedom in areas where Scripture has not spoken and where methods have not been determined. I want, to, I want you to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, uh, 22. 
This is the Apostle Paul, and, and you can't read these words without understanding it. Paul, Paul understood there was a lot of freedom for him as to how he went about his work as an apostle of Christ and as a teacher. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. The Apostle Paul understood. He said, you know, there's this eternal thing that I'm dealing with here, but God has left it up to me in the, in the realm of methods. There's freedom there. And I want to tell you something. To understand that you have freedom as well as to understand there's an eternal part of this and, and to understand the difference between those two, they're both important. They're so very important because it, it gives us some flexibility, some ways to come at things that, you know, I think God understood that we needed it. Number six, do not bind first century culture on 21st century Christians and churches do not bind first century culture on 21st century Christians and churches. And number seven, do not bind man-made traditions on Christians and churches. Jesus uh, gets into this in Matthew 15 in that chapter of the very first verses. He's in a controversy with the Pharisees. Some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And, and he, he just kind of puts it, puts it right back at him. He says, Hey, I, I'm all about commandments of God. But you guys elevate your traditions above the commandments of God. You actually break the commandments of God to keep your traditions. And then he goes on just a few verses later. This would be like verses 7 or 8 or whatever. He says, Well, did the prophet Isaiah speak of you? Well, did the prophet Isaiah speak of you? They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. They honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. For they teach for doctrines the commandments of men. And so Jesus just is explaining it. And he's saying, you know, don't bind man-made traditions on Christians and churches. Those are, those are seven things, and I believe that most conservative Christians, most conservative churches would accept those principles at least in theory. But what we notice is that differences persist. And I have to say that may be because some groups apply these steps maybe more completely and more consistently than others. But I want to talk about the restoration movement for a moment here. That may be a, a new term to, to you, but it's actually, um, it's, it's, it's like in the DNA of this church and, and what are called restoration churches. Um, in the early 1800s, on the American frontier, and the American frontier of the West was here in the 1800s. It was Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, West Virginia. We were the West at that time. But in the early 1800s, there were some religious leaders who got very concerned about the divisions in, among churches. At that time, uh, I mean, you might think of, the, of early America as being a very religious place. 
but it isn't true. In the early 1800s, in the what was called the frontier area, less than 10% of the people of the frontier professed Christ. And what was pitiful was that, unfortunately, those 10% were all caught up in fighting with one another. About It was denominational kinds of fights that were going on. Well, these, uh, some of these uh, preachers and teachers uh, were appalled by this. And they began to promote the ideas that we just talked about a few moments ago, those seven steps that you could take. They began to promote those things. They were hoping to resolve those differences, to establish some kind of unity among believers so that those 10% could turn around and do something about the 90% who were without Christ. But there was one important observation that was made by, by these leaders. They noticed that the churches were divided over things that weren't actually even stated in the New Testament. They were divided over things not even mentioned. A lot of what, what they were fighting about wasn't even in the New Testament. And they saw here that maybe this would be a key to restoring unity. And they said, you know, if we could just let that stuff alone and not make that important and, and, and lay that by the side, we could have some unity maybe. And that all got distilled down to just a simple slogan. Speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where the Bible is silent. Now, we're talking about silence in Scripture. Silence teaches in some cases. Did you know that? And, and probably the best, uh, the best example of this I could give is if you receive a, uh, a letter from the person that you're dating or whatever the person that you're going out with, and at the end of that letter, they sign that letter, cordially yours, so-and-so, and so-and-so. They don't say, I love you, somewhere in that letter. That silence speaks volumes, doesn't it? It says an awful lot about where you are in that relationship. Because you're expecting to see that thing there, and it's gone. Silence can tell you a lot. It teaches but here, silence in the scriptures. In most of those Christian churches that we're talking about back in frontier days, and I think it's still true today, in most Christian churches, the silence of the scripture is viewed as permission. If the Bible doesn't say anything about this, let's go on, let's do what we, do what we want to do. They think that's one of those areas of freedom. Maybe, maybe not. The restoration leaders, I'm talking about people who's Alexander Campbell, Barton Stone, Walter Scott, and other people like that, pointed out that sometimes silence isn't permission. Sometimes silence means no. It's a, pro, it's a prohibition. Now, it's true. Sometimes silence is permission. And the way, I mean, you can think of, think of this as the Great Commission. The Great Commission, Mark 16, 15 and 16. Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, and he that does not believe shall be condemned. Jesus gives the Great Commission. But there's a lot of latitude in what Jesus does here. I mean, that, that, all that stuff that, that Paul was talking about back in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul understood. He said, I've got all kinds of latitude about how I'm going to go about this, about how I'm going to go, about what methods or means I'm going to use, and about where I'm going to go first and, and when I should go. All of that stuff is just kind of wide open. God is late. He hasn't, like, nailed that down in Scripture. And so the fact that the... Great Commission is silent about all these questions. means, yeah, we're free. We have permission. We could uh, mention the assembly on the first day of the week. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhort one another, 
and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we're, we're talking about the assembly on the first day of the week, but you know, there's a lot of things that are just kind of left open, like um, where do we meet? And how long do we meet? And what time in the day do we meet? And uh, should we rent a place? Should we buy a place? Should we build a place? Do we just meet in homes? All of those questions are just kind of left hanging there. The Bible is basically silent about that. Or it gives you so many options, you understand that it, 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 God is giving, giving us freedom. The Bible is silent in these areas. We're free to make a decision. And silence many times does mean permission. But sometimes silence means no. And I could give you several examples of this, and I have in the past. We could go to that story of Nadab and Abihu and strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10. We could go to the case of David moving the Ark of the Covenant uh, in 1 Chronicles 13 and then in 15. We've, we've been through those stories a few times. Today, I just want to go to Hebrews chapter 7. Just a simple, simple statement there in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is talking about the priesthood of Christ. And the whole tenor of, of the book of Hebrews is that Christ and his covenant are so much better. They are superior to Moses and the covenant that came through Moses. And, and, and that whole book is just about saying, hey, what, what we have in Christ, what we have gained through Christ is superior to anything we've had before. And in chapter 7, he's talking about the priesthood of Jesus. And he points out that Jesus is not like the priest that existed under the law of Moses. But he says Jesus is more like the priest who lived centuries before Moses and centuries before the law came through Moses. It was a man named Melchizedek. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14 as Abraham is coming back from a big, big battle, big victory. And he's loaded down with spoil. And this Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. And he is called the king of Salem, the king of peace. Melchizedek is, is a very, uh, this is the only time we see him in all the Bible, but he's like kind of an important guy. But Melchizedek comes along and first of all, he blesses Abraham. He does two things that shows that he is superior to Abraham. The first thing he does, he blesses Abraham. And then Abraham turns around and gives him tithes of all the spoil from that, from that battle. Which is to say, Melchizedek is someone superior to Abraham. And so, part of the argument that the Hebrew writer is making, as he talks about the priesthood of Jesus, is that Jesus could never be a priest under Old Testament law. Could never have been that. And here's how he says it. Now, I want you to pay attention. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. He says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. This is how, this is how the Hebrew writer says, uh, this is his evidence for saying, there's no authorization, there's no way that Jesus could have been a priest under the Old Testament law. He's from the wrong tribe. And, and the way he says it, God has prohibited this, not by saying uh, no one from the tribe of Judah can ever be a priest. How Moses said this was by simply saying, you must be from the tribe of Levi. And he said absolutely nothing about the tribe of Judah in regard to priesthood. He's making an argument from silence. The Bible was silent on this. Therefore, it's prohibited. That's how the Hebrew writer is thinking here. 
Now, what I want you to understand, what this, uh, the, the Hebrew writer understood this principle. Jesus understood this principle. Every Jew in the day of Jesus understood this principle. This is how they approached Scripture. They understood. Every apostle of Christ understood what I've just told you. That if, G- if God says this, then all the other options in that class, so to speak, suddenly get eliminated. So it's not something that's new or something that's hard to understand, but for some reason, this is a hard concept for religious people today to apply in interpreting the Bible. Now, this kind of surprises me because we use this kind of reasoning reasoning often in modern times. We just don't do it when when we're looking at our Bibles. But we use this reasoning all the time in modern times. For instance, if you've ever pulled out a cookbook and looked at a recipe, how does a recipe work? A recipe doesn't tell you all the stuff you can't do. The recipe, uh, 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 a recipe or a cookbook is silent. I mean, there's this, this whole universe of possible ingredients you could put into a pot and call it food and cook something up. But a recipe is about getting you, telling you what the right stuff is, what it is you need to put in the pot, what the, uh, what the amounts are, and when you add them and how you blend them and all that and how long you cook. It, it, it tells you all the right stuff. It just, uh, but it's but it's silent about a lot of things. But we understand you can't do all those other things and put all that in the pot and end up with anything but a big, big pot of goo. Doesn't work, does it? So, you know, a, a recipe, just a simple, simple sentence, we understand when, the, when, the, when that recipe is silent about all these other ingredients, we know it's because it's not supposed to go in there. They've been eliminated. Uh, what about a doctor's prescription? Isn't that basic? I mean, there's this whole universe of drugs that are available. And there's all kinds of ways they can be taken. You can get a shot. You can get an IV. You can get, you take a pill, you get whatever, uh, some kind of liquid thing. I mean, you can do that. Uh, the, all this universe of all these drugs, and the doctor looks at you, and he writes a specific drug on a piece of paper. He doesn't prohibit everything else in the world. He doesn't prohibit all the thousands and thousands and thousands of other drugs. He simply writes the one that you need. And we understand that all that other stuff, he's saying no to that, but he's saying yes to this. That's how our prescription works. What about a job description? I mean, you ever think about what, what a job description is? Uh, you know, that, that tells you what you're responsible for and what your, uh, uh, what your duties are and, and where, uh, who you answer to and what, what, your, what your limits are what your authority is, what you can do and what you can't do. A job description kind of, you know, just focuses you and, te- and explains how you relate to the rest, of the, rest of, the, uh, rest of the organization. But it doesn't have to necessarily prohibit every other thing in that organization for you to understand what your job is. It's being spelled out for you right there. We correctly understand that silence means no. I don't go there. That's not my place. That's not my thing. I don't have the authority. Well, the Bible teaches us in the same way. By commands and exhortations and positive examples, God teaches us what the church is and how it operates and what it does. He teaches us what a Christian is and how he lives and what he says and what he does. He, he just, just on and on and on. He, he's just nailing it down. He's saying this and this and this and this. And there are a whole lot of things he doesn't bother to address. He's silent in a, a lot of areas. 
But he is constantly defining and drawing limits and giving shape and direction to the church and to, to the Christian's life in the Bible. And we need to pay attention not only to what the Bible says, but also to what it doesn't say, those silent places, because they can have meaning also. They mean something. When does silence mean no? And I've, I've said this a few times in the past, and probably uh, it may not be anything new to you, but for instance, if God were to say red, if it's something, the color, of, the color is red, we understand that green, orange, yellow, blue, and every other color in the world is off limits, ruled out. Why? Because God said red. Or if God said oak, then we understand that you know, there's, a, there's a whole world of, of different kinds of woods and trees out there. If God says oak, then we understand that gum and maple and poplar and hickory and all those other woods are ruled out. And what, what I want you to understand, in truth, God is not being silent in, the, in these areas, in these cases. He's talking about collar. As to collar, there are many collars. And he is saying yes to red, and he's saying no to every other collar there is. And as to kinds of woods, uh, God is not being silent. God is saying there's many different kinds of woods. He's saying yes to oak, but in saying yes to oak, he's saying no to every other kind of wood. You understand that? That's, that, that's, that's how this thinking applies. And so I just want to bring this down now. We're, we're coming to the end of this thing. I want to make this apply to the New Testament now. If God indicates to us that the first day of the week is the day of our worship, and he has, and he does. If the first day of the week, that Sunday, is our, is our day, he is also saying that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday, are not our days of worship. By simply saying Sunday is our day. You understand that? If God indicates to us that immersion is, is the method of baptism, then he's automatically saying that every other thing you can think of about baptism as far as how you do it, sprinkling and pouring and all that, are ruled out. If God indicates to us that there ought to be elders in every church, and he does that in Acts chapter 14, there were elders appointed in every church that Paul and Barnabas established, and we're told that, then all other forms of church leadership are automatically ruled out. And there's a lot of different ways that churches are organized. And he's not being silent about it. He, he's looked at the whole universe of how a, a, an organization might run, how it might be led and whatever. And God has picked one, and he's automatically eliminated. He, he is speaking. He's speaking by being silent. He said one, and he's eliminating the others. If God indicates to us that unleavened bread and fruit of the vine are the, are the emblems or the foods that go on the table, then other drinks and foods are ruled out. You can't have uh, milk and chocolate chip cookies because God has said what ought to be there. If God indicates to us that singing is the music for our worship, then all other kinds of music are ruled out. If God indicates that faith and repentance and baptism are the steps of conversion, and he does, that you can't get through the book of Acts without seeing that, or for that matter, through, through the uh, epistles. If God indicates that faith and repentance and baptism are the steps of conversion, then all the other ways of conversion, and there's a bunch of them now, you know, that, that people uh, in their minds, there's different paths that you would travel, uh, different steps you might take. You might be baptized as an infant. 
You might be confirmed uh, later on at age 12. You might say the sinner's prayer. You might go to the mourner's bench. You might put your hand on the radio or whatever else you can think of. Those are all ideas that are out there floating around. But God has designated one. He said it's faith, repentance, and baptism. And so he's eliminated those things by simply stating the way it ought to be. Now, why am I telling you all this? Okay, I said it was like uh, housekeeping. But I, I got three reasons why I'm saying this this morning. Number one, I want you to understand what's going on around here. I want you to understand how we arrive at the teachings and the practices that, that go on here. I want you, uh, I don't want you to stand, I want you to believe it, I want you to buy it, I want you to get on board and say, yeah, that's the way it is. But at the very minimum, even if you, even if you don't agree with everything, I at least want you to understand why. Okay? And so I, I'm telling you. That this, is, uh, this is insight into what the thought process, when someone stands up here and teaches, one of our elders or me or Jamie or whatever, in the back of our minds, this stuff is sitting there. Number two, I want you to start reading your Bibles differently. This is a, the time of year that uh, people get into reading programs. Like, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And we have the, those, uh, those lists and everything. And so we start off, and so you're reading five, six, seven, eight chapters a day and plowing right on through. And I'll tell you, reading the Bible is a great thing. It's all good. But I think we all need to understand that our big goal in life is not to be able to say I've read the Bible through X number of times. Because this book is given for our understanding, for our application. And some, I've noticed this about myself. Sometimes I'm so intent on covering my five chapters. I don't even know what I read when I got done. It's all about just getting my eyes to go across the page and say that I, you know, technically I, my eyes touched those words and, and went on, but I have no idea what I read. You ever do that? Yeah, okay. That happens quite a lot, doesn't it? Especially when you're, you're pushing, pushing, pushing. I got to get my five chapters, get six chapters, got to get seven chapters in so I can stay on. I got to catch up, man. I got to spend three or four hours on, uh, on Saturday catching up. Every, I, I want you to read your Bible differently. Every sentence that you read from your New Testament, you ought to be able to understand how that sentence fits with everything that you believe about God and about the whole, the whole thing, faith. You ought to understand how that sentence fits with everything else. And if you happen to come to a place, and if you don't, you're not reading very closely, if you don't come to some places where, huh, where you're stubbing your toe, and, it's, and, and you're saying, well, well, you know, I, this is what I believe, but look at that verse right there. If you don't come to those places, that, 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 those are very important places because what may be happening here, you may, you may need to change your mind about something. God, may, he put that thing there for you to stub your toe on because you might need to change your mind about something. And so I, I just say, you know, as you read, it's not so much about how much you cover, but do you understand what you're covering? And as you go along, you need to be testing everything that you believe by what you're reading. It's a different way of reading. Well... I don't think we'll ever get everything all tucked away in its place and understand how it all and it works together. I'm still working on about four, five, six, seven different places 
uh, that you know, every time I get there, I, I stub my toe and I got to go and, and kind of, you know, work with it and try to figure out what's going on. And, and sometimes I get a little bit and sometimes I don't. But we need to read our Bibles differently. And here's the third thing. If you have any ideas of being a leader in this church, I think it's going to be very important for you to understand the principles that I've talked about this morning. To be able to explain them uh, to be, and to be able to apply them. And I'm talking about not just those seven things at the beginning, but I'm talking about understanding the silence of the scriptures and how that teaches us. The church needs leaders who know the Lord and who know the word who can teach it and explain it and who are trying to live it. That is a leader in the Lord's church. There are so many challenges for the church today. There's all kinds of ideas out there floating around, all kinds of temptations, all kinds of tests. We're being pushed and pulled uh, from almost every direction now in ways that we maybe 50 years ago wouldn't have dreamed that some of those things would be, uh, would be coming up. And our only hope of remaining faithful and effective is to remain people of the word. To know it, to understand it, and to live it. How marvelous it would be if every member of this church became like that kind of a student, a student of the word. But at the very minimum, we at least have to have leaders who are that, those kinds of students. They understand what this is about and what's going on. This morning, uh, as we come to the end of our lesson here, I just want to offer the invitation of Christ, the invitation to become a Christian. We're going to sing a hymn here in just a moment. We're inviting those who are not Christians. If you want to become a Christian today, then we're inviting you to come. And we're, we're going to ask you to do exactly what the New Testament says to do to become a Christian. Because we know that's right. I don't know about all this, all this other stuff. I just know that's right. To come in faith and repentance, confessing your faith, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That makes you a Christian according to the New Testament. That's all, we're, that's all we're trying to do. If I can't show it to you in the New Testament, I won't ask you to do it. And you don't have any reason to do it. But if I can show you in the New Testament what's there, and I can, that's exactly what you need to do. And so we're going to sing our hymn. If you need to respond, please come. Uh, come to the front and let us know. And we will uh, we'll do what we can.